Well, brothers and sisters, what a joy to be able to meet with you once again this Lord's Day and to open God's Word together. And so I would invite you to do so by turning in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And as you were doing so, please stand that we might give honor to God and to His Word. Psalm 51. I'm going to read in your hearing this morning the entirety of this psalm, all 19 verses. And before I do, I would encourage you, I would remind you, dare I say admonish you, that what we have in front of us is not the words of mere men, but the word of God himself. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please take your seat. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses there to the castle door at the church in Wittenberg in 1517, The very first of those theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, the Christian life is, in a lot of ways, a life of repentance. This needs to be said because some mistakenly think that the Christian life only begins with repentance, as if we repent just once when we are converted. Not so. 
Just as the moth is drawn toward the flame, so the Christian is drawn toward repentance. Unfortunately, though, we live in a day and age, and and this is true not just of those outside of the church, but unfortunately those inside the church as well. We live in a day and age where repentance is deemed either irrelevant or inconsequential. Richard Phillips, the Presbyterian minister, has put it this way, Repentance is the stepchild in the family of Christian doctrines. Neglected, unwanted, and unappreciated. But of course, the Psalms won't let us get away with an attitude like this. Even a cursory reading of the Psalter will reveal that it is pregnant with songs of contrition, songs of confession, songs of repentance. What marks out these psalms, you ask? How how do we define them? Well, simply put, psalms of confession are those psalms that express deep sorrow and anguish over sin. And perhaps the most well-known of all of these types of psalms is the one that is in front of us this morning. Now, for you and I to understand the deep contrition, both the utter hopelessness and the utter hopefulness, we have to understand something of the background. You might think of it this way. Psalm 51 is the lyrics, but 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is the music. That is to say, the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are the beating drum behind this psalm. The very title of the psalm tips us off, doesn't it? We read to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, that is David, had gone into Bathsheba. I would trust that most of you are familiar with this particular episode. David, a married man, he lusted after another woman who also was married. And David, after he had had his way with her, this woman, Bathsheba, she became pregnant. Not content with such a grievous sin, David put the pedal to the metal. In an effort to hide his sin, he set in motion an elaborate and evil plan, one whereby Bathsheba's husband would come home from war, sleep with his wife, and then nine months later, David would be off the hook. Just one problem with David's plan Uriah, that is Bathsheba's husband, unlike David, this man was honorable. And I say that because Uriah refused to go home that night and sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were on the battlefield. And so after David tried a couple of times and after a couple of failed attempts, David decided instead of using this man as a pawn that he would make him a casualty. He sent word to the commander of the army by the hand of Uriah, mind you, to put Uriah at the front lines and then, when the battle raged hard, to quickly pull back and leave Uriah to be a sitting duck. Well, as you know, the plan was carried out. It was a great success, at least from David's perspective. And so David returned to his normal life. That is, until the prophet Nathan put his bony finger in David's chest and confronted him for his great sin. Now, church, that's the background to this psalm. 
And I think what the whole thing reveals is both the depths that you and I will go to to have our sin and to hide our sin from others. And at the same time, this psalm also reveals the height of God's grace in Christ for all and any who would confess their sins and trust in Christ. To unpack this glorious psalm this morning, let's start with the bad news. That is sin. And really the the guilt of it all. To see this, put your eyes on the end of verse 1. Because there you will see David cry out, blot out my transgressions. He uses the same language in verse 3. For I know my transgressions. That particular word, it's a word that means to cross a boundary or to break a rule. You might think of Julius Caesar. He transgressed when he crossed the Rubicon with an army. Another vividly descriptive word is found in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Or down at the end of verse 9, blot out all my iniquities. Here the idea is of perversion or corruption. Just as the sewer backing up would fill your basement with all manner of filth. So that is the picture here. Our sin, brothers and sisters, is a gross stench in the nostrils of our holy God. Still find another word for all of this, perhaps the most common word. You find it there at the end of verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned. Verse 9 adds, hide your face from my sins. Sin means to fall short or to miss the mark. What we have to see is that what God requires of us is perfection. A bullseye, if you like. But David has sinned. He has missed the mark. He he hasn't hit the bullseye. In fact, he's missed the target entirely. Now here's the deal. David is not alone in this. Let us not make the fatal mistake of thinking that here in Psalm 51, David is sort of an anomaly or an exception. The truth is, when you and I look at this psalm, when we look at David... Who we should see staring back at us in the mirror is ourselves. Sure, perhaps you haven't done exactly what David did. I trust that you haven't committed adultery or arranged for the murder of someone. Praise God. But I assure you, we are all like him. Doubt me? Do we not all lust? Do we not pine after what isn't ours? We are a people who covet, who idolize what we don't have. And so often, we are willing to do whatever we have to do to get whatever we want. Before you and I try to distance ourselves from David, let me ask you, What if you were in his position? Step back for a moment and think about this. Let's say that you are the king of the nation. 
People live and die by your word. You have endless resources available to you at your fingertips. Would you not sin in heinous ways? For a moment, let's let's forget the sin you have committed. Imagine the sin you would commit if you thought you could get away with it. Don't dwell on this too long. It'll be toxic for your soul. But imagine if your husband or wife would never find out. If you knew that there's no way that you could be caught, there would be no jail time. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt that your teachers, your friends, no one would ever know, then ask yourself, what would you do? Then ask yourself, what are you capable of? You see, we are all transgressors. We all commit iniquity. We are all those who sin. Romans 3 leaves no doubt. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even you. It's important at this juncture to mention that, that sin here is not just the fruit, though it is. It's also the root. In other words, we sin because we are sinners. The sun is out. It's March. In a couple of weeks, we will be lamenting the fact that that just as weeds spring forth from the cursed soil, so sin springs up from our evil hearts. This is what David's getting at there in verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. To, to be clear, this has nothing to do with David's conception or, or something like that being particularly wicked. Instead, what is being acknowledged here is what we often refer to as original sin. Now, I will concede that sometimes in theology, words or phrases can be misleading. And this is one of those instances. I say that because original sin does not, I repeat, does not refer to the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Rather, original sin refers to the sin nature that we are all born with as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. We come from the womb, as Vodibachum has said, vipers in diapers. Those of you that have small children know this. Contrary to our secular age, we are not born good people. We are not even born neutral. With respect to our nature and who we are, we are born totally depraved. So much so that transgression and iniquity and sin, it flows forth from our hearts just as the sewer pours forth sludge. This is why in our own hearts and in the hearts of our little ones who we love so much, this is why sin comes so natural. 
We don't have to teach our children to not share. We don't have to teach them to complain, to fuss. They are born thinking they are gods. This is why when they are in the crib, they shake and they yell because you will not worship them. That's what they're saying. They just don't know how to articulate it. And as we grow, we just become more sanctified in that. Now we sit in an automobile and we go, you stupid person, you're not worshiping me. We're just toddlers who can drive. It's because by nature, by nature, we are sinners. And the bad news is, the soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 Or perhaps more well-known, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so what we deserve is death. Really, what we deserve is judgment or hell. And hell, beloved, let's make no mistake about it, hell is the place where the holy and omnipotent wrath of God is unleashed upon sinners for their sin. And every person who goes to hell and for eternity endures the wrath of hell is getting exactly what they deserve. There is no injustice in hell because the soul who sins shall die. But notice, thankfully, that's not how the psalm ends. Granted, though God could and justly condemn us all to hell and God would still be good and worthy of praise, you understand that, right? God has in His grace chosen to redeem us. Verse 1 is wonderful. It's wonderful because in the face of sin, what does David do? He retreats to God. Beloved, he runs to the grace of God. Notice how verse 1 begins, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. Brothers and sisters, why plead to God? You troubled sinner, you weary saint, why should you in the face of your sin plead to God? Because God is, Exodus 34, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. According to Exodus 34, and this is God preaching a sermon about God. He says about himself, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving, here the trifecta, iniquity and transgression and sin. Just as God had told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Brothers and sisters, it is God's prerogative to show mercy to sinners. Not sinners in general, but sinners like you and I. This is who God is. That's the point. In the face of our sin, we can find refuge in God. We can come to God, who is, verse 1, overflowing with steadfast love. 
God who is, verse 1 again, abounding in mercy. Find fault with David if you like, and you should. That dude was guilty. But at least he knew where to go with his guilt. Or better said, he knew who to go to with his guilt. Sinner, don't for a moment sweep or try and sweep your sin under the rug. Run. Run, make a beeline to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is, verse 1, full of steadfast love and abundant mercy. I'd have you to notice as well, because it is balm for your soul. Look at the contrast in verses 1 and 2 between what David brings to the table and what God brings to the table. What does David's resume look like? This is what's plastered on it. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Contrast that with God's resume. What's plastered all over it? Steadfast love. Abundant mercy. You have to see, saint and sinner, that forgiveness won't be found in self. The guilt you carry for your sin, it will not be relieved by you, quote-unquote, following your heart. Or this stupid language of you just learning to forgive yourself. Oprah can't do it. Your therapist can't do it. A pharmacist can't do it. The disease that you have is terminal, and you will not be cured by navel-gazing or staring at your mug in the mirror. You must learn, as Bunyan's Christian learned, as that little pilgrim learned who was lugging that backpack all around. That he will not be unburdened, you will not be unburdened, until you come to take that load off at the cross of Christ. David was guilty. And if you, my friend, perhaps for the first time or the millionth time, if you this morning have been awakened to your sin and you see yourself as guilty, please hear me. That is a good thing. It's a good thing. Granted, the x-ray revealing the tumor is bad, but at least now the surgeon knows where to go after it, right? Well, so you. You've seen your sin. The x-ray has come back. Now run to Christ. Run to the Savior who delights to save sinners. In, in David's case, he knew he was guilty. There was just one problem. The sacrificial system at the time, uh, Moses, the Old Covenant, the Levitical system itself, it provided a, a temporary forgiveness, if you will, for a whole host of sins. But not all sins. And two of the sins that the Old Covenant did not, did not provide atonement for were adultery and murder. In both cases, there was no sacrifice that could be offered. There was no check that you could write. Both were, to put it in today's terms, both were at the time capital offenses, which meant that both carried with them 
the death penalty. Someone had to die. And that someone was David. You can see this alluded to in verse 14. This is why he cries out, Deliver me from my, the ESV reads, blood guiltiness, O God. That is to say, I know I shed blood, and I know that I deserve to have my blood shed for it. But God, would you have mercy on me? David's saying, if there was a sacrifice I could offer, I would. But God, there isn't. So all I can fall back on is your grace. This is most certainly why David erupts in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a a type of plant. It was all the rage in those days. It it was small and, and somewhat in the shape of a brush, and so that's what people would use it for. You can see this, for example, in the first Passover meal, right? God's people used a hyssop brush to paint the blood on the doorposts, remember? That way, when the angel of death came by at midnight, he would, at the sight of the blood, he would what? Pass over the house. So when David is pleading with God to purify him, what he is saying is something like this, sprinkle me with blood but not my own blood. The blood of something else. The blood of someone else. God, I I need a sacrifice for my sin. But I can't find one. David's desperate. He knows that the angel of death should unsheath his sword. Which means that in a lot of ways, David realized what so many modern evangelicals seem to miss. Doing your best tomorrow will not make up for yesterday's subpar performance. Trying really hard the next time won't undo what you did this time. Your only hope is not yourself. Not your your strong discipline, your strong willpower, your new sort of moralistic religious attempts. It's It's nothing with you. Your only hope is a sacrifice that would cause the angel of death to pass over you. Your only hope is the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. But... We still must confess. We still must repent. Yes, it's true. Even your repentance is empowered by the Spirit of God. Even your and my repentance is fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, nonetheless, we must still repent. We are the ones repenting. And we must do it. Just as the blood had to be applied to the doorpost for the angel of death to pass over, so you and I must confess and repent if we are to be spared judgment. The question then is this. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like when we actually repent? Let me give you four words. Four words that flesh out true repentance. The first is recognize. 
To repent starts when you and I recognize that we have wronged God. All throughout this psalm, what you will notice is that David takes full responsibility for his sin. There's none of this, it's not my fault, I didn't understand. Not a hint of the garbage we hear today. I I can't help it. I was born that way. It was part of my upbringing. It's not a big deal. True repentance starts with you. It starts with me. End of verse 1. My transgressions. Verse 2. My iniquity. End of verse 2. My sin. Verse 3. My transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You have to start by taking responsibility for your sin. Ventil once said, Repentance means the recognition of bankruptcy. And until you and I recognize that we have wronged God and that we are bankrupt before Him, we have not truly repented. All we're doing is playing church. That's all we're doing. Second, remorse. To repent means we will feel remorse for dishonoring God. It is one thing, church, to own your sin. It is quite another to be broken over your sin. And to be clear, to be broken over not just the consequences, but to actually broken over the fact that by your sin you have dishonored God. You will look in vain throughout the entirety of this psalm for any hint of shallowness or flippancy. What you will find is that David is truly broken. Verse 4 is instructive. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Think of the small child busted with his hand in the cookie jar. Upon mom coming around the corner, what does little Johnny do? But He begins to cry. Why? Not because he has disobeyed mom and wounded her heart, but now he gets a hand slap and no cookie. You have to understand, little Johnny's tears are not tears of repentance. They are tears of getting caught. And there is a massive difference between the two. The great Reformed Baptist of the 20th century, A.W. Pink, he said it best, it is not the absence of sin but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from false converts. It's not your sinlessness, brothers and sisters, that makes you, that gives evidence of a Christian. It's the fact that you weep over it. That you grieve over the fact that you are a wretch. That you have broken God's law. That you have dishonored Him. That brings us to our third word which characterizes repentance. Renunciation. To repent means you will renounce your sin. You will turn from it. You will put distance between it and you. You will put your back to it. 
That's David's plea in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is saying, I want to change. I want to repent. I want to be a new man. My friend, you must go before the Lord and you must renounce your sin. You must confess that you love to love your sin. That you, you must confess that you don't actually hate your sin as you should because if you did, you wouldn't keep going back to it. Pour out your heart to God. Plead with Him to enable you to think of your sin the same way that He does, with great loathsome hatred. And then beg Him to enable you to think of righteousness the way that He does, with great delight. At the end of the day, and the beginning, and the middle, you need a new heart. You need a new spirit. And only God can do that work. This renouncing of sin is vitally important. It is vitally important because, Christian, there is no true repentance apart from it. Hear me well. You cannot have your Savior and your sin at the same time. You cannot cling to your sin and cling to Christ at the same time. Simply recognizing you've wronged God and feeling bad isn't enough. Those are half measures. You must renounce your sin. It's in vogue these days to speak of repentance merely as a change of mind. Not necessarily one that comes to affect your life, your actions, your behavior. We speak of so-called carnal Christians or God forbid, those who have Christ as their Savior, but not as their Lord, whatever that means. None of this will do. You can't divide up Christ. You can't accept the parts of Christ that you like and then stiff-arm the parts that you don't. You will either have all of Christ or you will have none of Christ, and Christ will not negotiate. Back to this idea of repentance being merely a change of mind. L let me ask you, you are sitting here now. You are in this place, and all is well. But let's say, all of a sudden, you begin to smell smoke. You turn behind you, and what do you see but, but flames? I assure you, in that moment, your mind has changed. Your mind has gone from safe, no fire, to not safe, with fire. Here's the question. Will you then continue to sit in your seat as if nothing has happened? Of course not. You will immediately get up, grab your loved ones, and make a mad dash for the door. That's what you would do, isn't it? Would you not flee to safety? Of course you would. Well, my point is, your mind changed which inevitably led to a change in your actions. And that, church, is repentance. That is renunciation. When you are convicted of your sin, when you are confronted with the glory of Christ, when the fires of hell and judgment are nipping at your feet, 
when the reality of sin's tyranny is exposed, once you have tasted and seen how bitter and sour the life you are living in rebellion to God is, I assure you, you won't merely change your mind. You will change your mind, which will result in you changing your actions. That is repentance. Anything less is not repentance. Fourth and final word then is request. To truly repent means we will request pardon from the hand of God. In light of your sin, you won't scramble to justify it. You won't seek to update your resume. You won't even promise to never do it again or vow to undertake some new self-discipline. We will simply come to God with the empty hands of faith, requesting He look upon us with mercy, solely on account of Christ. We will echo verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, not according to me or what I have done or haven't done or what I will do or won't do, but have mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. We will cry out, verse 2, wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Oh God, do for me what I cannot do for myself. Church, this is what confession is. What true repentance consists of. Recognize, remorse, renounce, and request. This is not just what Psalm 51 teaches us. This is what the gospel calls us to. This is also why repentance has been referred to as the vomit of the soul. That comes from Thomas Brooks, a great Puritan. Why such vivid language, you ask? Well, I have never met a person who actually enjoys vomiting. It's painful. It's gross. It's exhausting. But it's also necessary for the health of the body, isn't it? When you vomit, I'm sorry, but your body is rejecting something that it deems is unhealthy. Such is the case with true repentance. A soul that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God and made new, it must, it must reject, vomit out sin. And that's because for the Christian, sin is a plague. It's a disease. And just as laying on the bathroom floor in a hot sweat, hugging the toilet, waiting to vomit is hard and painful and humbling, so is true repentance. But I would add, it's also worth it, isn't it? I don't want to be unnecessarily graphic, but when you vomit physically, do you not almost immediately feel better? Right? The ickies are out. You can return to the fetal position on the bathroom floor. So it is 
with the vomit of the soul. True confession, true repentance, it brings in its wake health, spiritual health. So the point is, repentance is not in vain. It's not for nothing. To switch metaphors, the clouds of repentance drop the rain of renewal upon the soil of our hearts. Or if I can just cut to the chase. When we seek the face of God with our backs toward sin, our hearts resting in Christ, and our hands of faith empty, God hears us. And He grants to us restoration and reformation and revival and renewal. This is the beauty of the gospel. When we repent of our sin and rest in Christ, God renews us. Or if you prefer, we can use those familiar words from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This was certainly David's hope, wasn't it? Verse 7 again, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Still in verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I, I am filthy right now, God. I'm dirty and corrupted and stained. But in Christ, you can scrub me clean by his blood. In Christ, you can wash me and make me new. 1 John 1.7 announces the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1.7 In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not to be outdone, Romans 3.24 We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.16, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Hear me well, church. There is pardon to be had, and it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. That's where cleansing is. That's where renewal is found. That's where you will find hope and new life. And this renewal is something that God promises us in the gospel. But this renewal, it's not just cleansing, as glorious as that is. It's also full-on restoration. I say that because of how verse 8 sings. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Or verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Think of it very quickly as a math equation. Repenting of sin plus resting in Christ equals renewal. And this renewal is not just a cleansing from sin. It is also a restored relationship with the triune God who made you and who loves you and who is committed to you. As we've said, it's joy, it's hope, it's gladness and salvation and healing and new life. And keep in mind... Let's not fall into the trap of whitewashing David here. 
This man was a lying and conspiring adulterer and murderer. And yet, in the gospel, Christ offers him what? Not probation, but pardon. Not curses, but cleansing. Not judgment, but jubilee. Not rejection, but renewal. Too often, too many Christians, they fall into this trap of thinking that Christ forgives them for their little sins. You know what I mean, like the little white lies, the occasional loss of temper, the kicking of the dog, the popping off at your spouse or your boss or your neighbor. That, that, that's sort of where Christ shines, right? It's in those sins. But the big ones, the ugly ones, the ones that we don't talk about, the ones we don't share in community groups, those are a different story. Such an attitude only reveals our half-hearted commitment to the gospel. When it comes to the big sins, we tend to imagine that God is biting his lip, having to restrain himself from unloading on us. But think about it. Think of the the so-called hall of faith of Hebrews 11. You realize that the hall of faith is lined with trophies of God's grace. Those who were just absolute stinking wretches just like you and just like me. What do I mean? Well, Noah was a drunkard. Abraham, an idolater. Jacob was a conniving, lying cheat. Moses murdered a man and sought to cover it up. David, as we've seen, was both an adulterer and a murderer. The apostle John was a hothead, to put it mildly ready to call down fire and brimstone on any and everybody who didn't cross T's and dot I's the way that he liked to. And Peter, well, Peter so denied Christ that he called down a divine curse upon himself if he was lying, which in fact he was. While we're on this train, let's throw another character on board. Now granted, this man isn't found in the pages of Holy Scripture, but I trust you'll know the name. Jeffrey Dahmer. Here's a man who was a serial killer, a pedophile, and was involved in both cannibalism and necrophilia. Here's my question. Is your gospel big enough for the biggest sins? I say that because it is reported that Dahmer, while in prison, repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. Now, I don't know, you know, I I can't tell you how true that is. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that it's bona fide true. Here's the thought experiment. Does that bother you? Does the fact that when you gather around the throne of glory to worship Christ, the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer will be there, does that cause your skin to crawl? And if so, then you don't know what grace is. You don't yet understand what Psalm 51 is going on and on about. 
You, you don't yet understand, and I don't mean like you don't understand with your cerebral cortex. I mean you don't yet feel it in your bones. You don't see that in the gospel, Christ offers pardon and righteousness, not reluctantly, but on a hair trigger to sinners of all sorts and stripes who would repent. You aren't yet gripped by the scandalous reality of grace and that God's grace in Christ for repentant sinners is bigger and wider and deeper than any sin. Now don't get me wrong. None of this means that our sins don't have earthly consequences. They do. And when we come to Christ, those consequences do not immediately vanish. Dahmer died in prison, as he should have. Actually, true justice would have, him, would have been him being executed by the state immediately upon conviction. But the point is, while repentance always results in renewal with respect to God, in this life, we are often forced to walk with a limp. David knew that. If you recall the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the child that was produced through this sinful and adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, he died. God killed that baby because of David's sin. Those are some pretty heavy earthly consequences. But nonetheless, David found pardon in the gospel of Christ. He repented and he experienced the renewal that is found only in God's grace. And beloved, I would say that that same renewal, and, and by that I mean pardon and cleansing and joy and life and salvation and justification and righteousness, that renewal, it is offered to each and every one of us even today as we confess our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what Christ offers you. Come to him today. Cry out to him. Confess your sins to him. Repent of them. Turn your back to them and rest in Christ and Christ alone. Cease putting any confidence in the flesh. Know that in you, that is in your flesh, there dwells no good thing. That apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Don't look to anything or anyone other than Jesus. Lean on Him. Lean into His promises. And know that no matter how wicked you are, no matter what sins you are hiding in the closet, that Christ is all you need. The promise of the gospel is not clean up your act, get it figured out, and then maybe we'll have a deal. The promise of the gospel is that God justifies the ungodly. Anybody qualify? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by the magnitude of your grace. We have great sin, and yet you have provided a great Savior. We pray for those of us who are struggling with sin, that you would cause our hearts to be encouraged by the truth of your word. 
We pray for those of us who are succeeding and striving in in grace that we would find confidence not in ourselves but in your spirit. And we would pray for any of those this morning, young or old, who have not yet been awakened to their sin and to the glory of Christ, that your spirit might see fit to cause new life even in these moments. We pray all of this in Jesus' great and glorious name. And God's people said, Amen.